I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours. At a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Ancient Office Hours. I was finally able to sit down with my friend Megan Lewis, an Assyriologist who, together with her also Assyriologist husband, Dr. Josh Bowen, started the YouTube channel Digital Hammurabi. Digital Hammurabi is a public outreach and digital humanities initiative whose goal is to provide the general public with reliable, accurate information about the ancient Near East. This past winter, I'd originally reached out to Megan about collaborating on future projects and ended up being invited to do an interview with Megan for Digital Hammurabi's YouTube channel. I then immediately invited Megan to join me on the podcast. I'm really happy we were able to have her join me because at the time of this recording, Megan was still heavily pregnant with her beautiful twins, Nora and Jasper, and having her sit for a long period of time would grow quite uncomfortable. So I got to pick her brain about what an Assyriologist studies, why leaving a PhD program shouldn't be seen as a failure, her work co-creating Digital Hammurabi with Josh, and what academics can do if they don't want to be in academia. I was so excited to finally have an Assyriologist appear on the show because it's a small field that rarely gets talked about outside of academia. I hope you all enjoy learning about this fascinating field, and I'll speak to y'all soon. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I was really looking forward to this one because you are my first Assyriologist. Woo! Everyone Yay. needs an Assyriologist in their life. Everyone does. This is a I'm fact. I'm glad that I can fill that role for you. Thank you. Really, though. You know, it's funny because every museum I go to, well, ancient museum, they have like an Assyriology collection. Do you know how like terrible it is going to a museum and then just being like, oh, well, this looks nice and I love this so much and I wish I knew, but I have no concept yep. of what this is. Yep. And then being like, I want that one friend. I can just text a picture of this and what be is, like, what is what this? this? Yeah. It looks fantastic, but like it, it also looks kind of like a chicken walked across a piece of clay. But it must mean something. Yes. So it's yeah. actually weird how many like really small museums have at least one or two things in cuneiform. And you're like, how on earth did like, how, where, how did you get this? Where is this from? This is fascinating. 
Yeah. Well, that and then, you know, I um, I love friends with weird talents. So I can probably count on one hand how many friends I have who I can just shove up against the glass and be like, this weird <laughs> ancient language that looks like chicken scratch. You can read Tell it. me about it. Yeah, because <laughs> I wish I knew. But, you know, I love cuneiform tablets. I think they're some of the prettiest things in the world. I cannot read them. God bless anyone who can because <laughs> this is gorgeous. Um, Well-written cuneiform is gorgeous is just fantastic i love it well with that that leads perfectly into for the people who are not really aware of what a seriology is mm. if you are going to write a seriology for dummies what is the field of a seriology like what ancient civs does it actually encompass and time mm-hmm. period so you know they say okay it starts here and it ends here and is it all of Babylonia and Sumer and Assyria proper because the field itself is just called Assyriology. So I know a lot of people who kind of make the mistake of assuming it's just the Assyrians. Just Assyrians. Yeah. So Assyriology is the study of the cultures and languages of Mesopotamia, which is the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which are mostly in Iraq that kind of extend up into Syria. And properly speaking, Assyriology is quite bound to cuneiform so it it encompasses the beginning of cuneiform writing all the way through to the end which means that assyriologists will cover a vast amount of ground because the 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 writing system is used by several different empires and then it's used by people who are ruled by different empires so even though alexander the great didn't use cuneiform himself like he conquered areas that kind of did so assyriologists who work in like the late late cuneiform period will cover hellenistic materials if it happens in mesopotamia we like it basically so yeah so 3200 roughly is is agreed to be the beginning through to the first century ad and it involves primarily Assyria, which is the area in the north, and Babylonia, which is the area in the south. Their interactions, their wars and, and people conquering each other. But it does also cover things like Ugarit, the city of Ugarit. They used cuneiform. I said there's old Persian cuneiform as well. So you do get people working on kind of Persian culture and, and how that interacts with Mesopotamia, all that kind of stuff. So we're looking at the ones you're probably familiar with, are like the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So Ashurbanipal, he had the really famous library that is mostly housed in the British Museum right now. Um, if you've seen the big Lamassu, the big kind of bull men with massive wings, that's Mesopotamia, that's uh, near Assyrian period, the near Babylonian period that turns up in the Bible quite regularly. Or am I getting those confused? See, this is why I shouldn't talk about the later periods because it just, it isn't, it isn't what I do. The Neo-Assyrians turn up in the Bible and then the Neo-Babylonians also turn up in the Bible. So both of them are biblical. It's fine. But the reason the field is called Assyriology is actually because of the Bible, because you see the Assyrians constantly kind of coming up as the biblical enemies. So when people discovered a writing system used by these these Assyrians and discovered that actually it it carries down into the south and it's used way, way before the Assyrians are actually Assyrians, it just everything is Assyriology, which does make it a little confusing because 
the the dialect of of cuneiform that I used to read a lot was Old Babylonian. It, it's not a Syrian. It works slightly differently. Uses different signs, and and the grammar is different. And then you've got Sumerian, which is a completely different language altogether. But it, it's still kind of under the umbrella of a Syriology. And by and large, Syriologists will focus more on the language. Um, and archaeologists of the region are normally referred to as Near Eastern archaeologists. But I think a lot of people try and kind of bridge that gap and, and work more closely than than was previously previously encouraged. Okay. Yeah, that's a great explanation because, I mean, I'm guilty of getting my timelines wrong. Like, luckily, oh, just with my familiarity, I'm like, okay, I know who it encompasses, but I'm always mm-hmm. like, timelines, oh no. Because I always, for whatever reason, I tend to think of them as, oh yes, they're the old ones that like came all the way before the Egyptians Mm -hmm. and then I don't know why but I have this like I have this really weird thing where I'm like yeah it just kind of seems to stop when Egypt becomes like Hellenistic Egypt I I Mm -hmm. always kind of like lose track of anything in the Middle East yeah that's just kind of chilling out over there right Mm -hmm. are they Persian yet like I was I'm just like I don't know what's happening over there it's okay that's not my field (laughs) I'm in Greece about them Yeah, I'm like, I'm over here. My jam is, to be honest, 5th century Greece mm-hmm. and into 4th century, I'd say as well. My boy is Themistocles. So anything with Themistocles, I'm like, yes. And You're very happy. <laughs> I'm so happy. Themistocles and Pericles together are like, they're my boys. And then Aspasia, my girl over here. So yeah, those are my people. And then, you know, just give me books on them. And I'm very, very happy in a, in a corner and I'll shut up. <laughs> now I have to ask, how did you get into Assyriology? Because it is such like a weirdly small niche. It's interest. like super niche. Like mm-hmm. really, you don't, well, you do in the States. I was, when I moved here and I became a stepmother to a kid who recently went into middle school, I was um, like genuinely amazed to learn that you do actually learn about Mesopotamia here in grade school. I didn't. It's like my high school and primary school history was like, we did the Vikings, we did the Egyptians, and somehow we skipped all the way to World War One. Um, like we completely missed the whole of Mesopotamia. So I didn't even know that Mesopotamia was a thing until I got to college. Um, and actually I went into school wanting to do classics. So I did classics in high school. Um, I did the art and the architecture and the literature and it was amazing and wonderful. And I was like, yes, I feel this. This is my thing. I love it. And then somehow I went on a total tangent and went to art school for two years. (laughs) But I mean, why not? Why not? Uh, So after two years, I went, my sister actually was going to a university open day in the city I lived in. And she was interested in their ancient history program. And she sat through the instructory lecture and I came with her because I hadn't seen my sister for ages. So sure, we'll meet up. We'll have some lunch. I'll wander around this beautiful old campus with you. I'll sit and listen to some people talk about things. And then I sat through the ancient history introduction with her and was like, oh my God, I am wasting my life. I, I am actually wasting my life in art school. This is why am I doing this? Like what? I don't know why I'm doing it. Uh, so that year, I actually switched universities and switched degrees um, <laughs> to that school that she was interviewing at. That she, she actually didn't go to. She went to uh, the University of York, and I ended up at University of Birmingham doing ancient history. Like, and it was fantastic because the um, 
the ancient history program at Birmingham, at least when I went through it, covered the classics. It covered Egyptology and Mesopotamia. We did a, a whole load of Assyriological stuff, which was my very first exposure to Assyriology as a field. Um, and it was really interesting. And I was, I was still kind of like... I like this, but classics is, you know, my heart is with the classics because I had this great experience in high school and I really love the literature and it's just like the mythology is amazing. And, and let's just, let's just go with that, I think. And then when I came to do my undergraduate thesis, uh, my thesis advisor was an Assyriologist called Dr. Alistair Livingstone, uh, who very sadly we lost to COVID um, at the beginning of this year, but like he was amazing. He was at just the most humorous, the most engaging professor I have ever had, who genuinely had a passion for both the subject and his students, um, which can be really, really rare. Um, and I was sitting talking to him and I said, look, I really want to do my thesis on classical mythology. And he was like, well, Megan, I mean, you can do that. Why don't instead maybe you consider doing a comparison between classical mythology and Mesopotamian mythology? And I was like, okay. Sure. What? I'm, why not? So I did that, and it was great. Um, and then he said, "You know, Megan, he's like really, really good at very gently suggesting things to you that aren't like you're on the wrong career path entirely. You should, you should come over and join me." It was like a, a very gentle. Have you considered maybe looking this way instead at Mesopotamia? Because you know the classics is great, but. They've dug everything up and there's no there's no new texts to translate and everything's kind of reworking stuff that has been known for like centuries at this. And I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I hear where you're coming from. And he said, and we have so much in Mesopotamia that like they're still pulling tablets out of the ground and we, we need people like you. Like specifically, like oh, oh, like okay, okay, I could, I could make a difference here. It's like we need people like you to translate this stuff so that other people can. I was like, I'm sold, I'm sold. And so I did a master's in Assyriology <laughs> with him at Birmingham, <laughs> and then I went on to do a PhD at Johns Hopkins. Well, not I didn't actually finish the PhD. I got most of the way through, and then I was like, can't do this with like eight million children running around. I'll go back and finish it later. Um, so yeah, that's the really long convoluted story of how I got into Assyriology. I was kind of coerced. Um, and I'm very glad I'm here. It's fantastic. It's worked out beautifully. But no, I was going to be a classicist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, one, that very wonderful slow burn of classics is fine. But you know, there's so many people. I totally understand that. Also, that makes me a little sad. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> no, I kind of felt that way, but we didn't have any other options. But mm -hmm. also like you, I was like, no, no, this is my jam. This is my stuff. I got this. That's just ignoring the fact that when I was in sixth grade, we did do our ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia and Greece units, mm -hmm. which was like a life changing experience. Mm -hmm. And I always say, that is the year, that is the time and the age where I was like, I'm going to be an Egyptologist if it's the last thing I do. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, I had very, very difficult conversations with people who were like, well, if you're going to do that, you need to do this, 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 and this. And I was like, <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> so I was just like, who has time to learn all these languages? And then I was like, oh God, you need the same thing for classics. Well, okay sure is there a path without them 
maybe. Yep. I definitely would have probably gotten the languages, but see, I was like the, I want to study abroad. Like mm-hmm. I'd rather just go to Greece um, yep. and, and wherever else. So my advisor was a really, really nice man. And he was like, okay, I'll work with you. We're going to like plot everything out and figure out everything. And then it turned out to be one of those, okay, you can either study abroad or you can do the languages. Cause you like, I, I had weirdly not left myself room to do both. Also, mm-hmm. I'm the, I'm a terrible example. I like did everything the wrong way. I mean, I got to uni and it was, okay, I'm starting with all the very difficult upper level courses and I'm going to work backwards. So that by the time I'm a senior, all I have left are like- Your last year would be super easy. Yeah. Gen ed. Okay, so when you were making the switch from mm-hmm. classics into seriology, did you have a favorite part of your new career path or you know, was it just like a very general, all of it's cool, so I will study all of it? So mm, that's a good question. <laughs> It was, I've always been most drawn to like mythology and religion and stories about gods and that side of things um, over and above political history, which it actually is still fascinating. But to begin with, it was very much, a, I like the literature, I like the the religion, it's really interesting to me. Um, so my undergraduate thesis was like a comparison between classical and Greek mythology and like what ideas may have been borrowed and how would they have got there. And so that was, I enjoyed that. And then my undergraduate, no, my master's thesis, I looked at um, the goddess Ishtar in the near Assyrian period and ha- what the textual evidence can tell us about how humanity perceived their relationship with her, specifically like the royal relationship between the goddess and the king. Um, so that kind of interaction of, of human and divine and how people form, maintain and envision relationships between themselves and between the divine. Um, and I wanted kind of to continue that with my PhD. And PhDs in the US and the UK work very, very differently. And I think you probably know this, Lexi. If in the UK, you essentially get a three-year writing project and you do your own research and you write stuff and then boom, you're done. Um, in the US, at least the field that I'm in, you do like usually three years of coursework. So you go back into the classroom. And after having done a research master's, that that was like a wrench. It was, oh, okay. I'm just going to sit here and and basically try and get through it because it's an immense amount of work. So that was that was a lot for three years, um, and then I got to the end of it. And during that time, my interest had kind of shifted, and I was planning on looking at personal letters from um, merchant families in the sec- yeah second millennium because it's so much of what we see in the ancient world is filtered through the lens of the elites and through like royal families and that's fascinating but it doesn't tell you an awful lot about the lived experience to be wealthy and powerful um and in mesopotamia we're really lucky to have this collection of letters they're actually excavated in turkey that are between um merchants usually male merchants who have gone up to anatolia to kind of run a trade network up there so the, the letters between them and then their families and wives who they leave back in Mesopotamia. And um, obviously we only have one half of the letters because we don't have the stuff that they sent back to Mesopotamia. Um, but the letters are really interesting and it. You get a good sense of personal relationships between these people, between husbands and wives and kind of, why haven't you come home? I don't have enough money. You didn't leave me enough money to feed the children. Uh, you need to come home and go to temple. And like, there's all this, this family obligation that you need to come home for. Um, and they're obviously 
not coming home. And then at this this kind of continues for a couple of generations and um eventually the the men end up having wives at home and then wives in turkey as well so that's like a really interesting like interpersonal relationships thing so i wanted to look at the letters written by these women uh because again non-elites and and women which is like okay really really cool because most of what we have from the ancient world is is rich men um and then my advisor sat me down and he was like megan we can do this i think you will be miserable because i am and i will be the first to admit this i am not a philologist i can handle sumerian and akkadian it's not my strength um and to do this dissertation properly i'd have to sit down and make a translation of all the, the letters and like he'd ha- he'd want me obviously to go through and make sure I knew exactly what the grammar was doing and what this word is is like doing representing in the sentence and be able to explain it so I can fully articulate um, the meaning behind the letters and he said like we we can do this I don't think you'll be happy doing it and he was right I would not have been <laughs> happy doing it so I ended up uh, looking instead at royal inscriptions which is obviously the absolute opposite of everything I've just told you is really awesome um, because they're written like on the behalf of rich elite men uh, so but what I was trying to do with those instead of just kind of looking at the, the propaganda side um, which is the like the obvious way to to work with royal inscriptions because they're not they're not writing history let's let's say that they are writing what the king would like you to know about him um, which in and of itself is very interesting for conceptions of kingship and monarchy and that kind of thing. Um, but what I was looking at instead was the interplay between the uh, textual inscription, what that inscription was placed on. So was it on a brick? Was it on um, a piece of pottery or a weapon? Or what is it on? And then where that object was found and what it was found with. Because in, in Assyriology, a lot of the time when you're looking at texts, you're not necessarily looking at the fact that this information was found on a physical object and it has an archaeological context and it's doing a specific thing and that specific thing is very much informed by what it's on and where it was found. So I made this huge whole database of um, inscriptions and objects and find spots and it was really cool and I loved it. Um, And then I almost had a nervous breakdown, so I stopped. I have on my hard drive, like a PhD dissertation that just three quarters done. Um, <laughs> and one day, one day I will finish it or at least publish what I have so that other people can use it. Um, because when you look at this stuff and there are, I have like, I have 13,000 objects, I think. In, and inscriptions are repeated across objects. So I'm, I have 13,000 objects, but I maybe only have a couple of hundred inscriptions. But when you look at it in like that, scale of of what in that large scale you find interesting things like building inscriptions that commemorate the construction of buildings so temples and palaces and that kind of thing um a lot of the time are found on bricks used to build the temple that they're commemorating but not always there's a good percentage of them that are just found on different buildings in different cities even and then the question is kind of why is that? And actually, is it important that, you, that that inscription is used in that building? Or is it just the fact that it's been written down? Um, 
to record what has happened and then really the location is is of secondary importance um and then there are things like inscriptions are written on on objects and then buried so who is the inscription for because it's obviously not being read by people um even if it is visible then you get into questions of like general literacy because not a hugely literate population so is it just the fact that there is writing and that is a status symbol in and of itself are they being written down for the people the few people who can understand them or are they being written for the gods um which would then also speak to things like foundation deposits which are buried underneath temples before they're constructed so that is a really really long answer to a very very simple question sorry i kind of ran with that oh no we love it we love the long rambly answers because then it's (laughs) like getting a a special little peek into how your brain works um and i'm just so fascinated by scholars of the ancient world's brains so you know there's there's nothing uh, you know <laughs> nothing like it but uh that all sounds really really cool because you know i can't tell what's what so when going into museums i'm like this could be a royal inscription this could be a random merchant tablet this could be i have no idea what this is. but it looks know. nice yeah <laughs> it looks nice um okay so Leaving a PhD program must not be easy, especially when you're so close to no. having it done. No, so I think there's there's a lot of like misconceptions out there, as you probably know as a scholar yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, there's so many people out there who say, you know, oh, I want to go and I want to do this and this is what I have to do. And if I don't do this, I mm-hmm. feel like I've failed somehow. I failed myself, my parents. I, I don't know who you who people yeah. out there to think about that but i do definitely know people who i don't personally think they're cut out to do phds but they're saying like i want to do it Mm -hmm. so you know having that sort of real life experience can you talk a little bit about what it was actually like in a phd program in a program of the ancient studies where you know it's not the same as classics or egyptology but you still you need ancient material and all the stuff that goes into it is probably pretty similar. <laughs> There's got to be a reason, right, that it's so hard that only yeah. a small percentage of people actually go through with these and finish them all the way through. Absolutely. I think straight up the sheer volume of work is insane. Um, and it's difficult because you you have to be able to command a really large amount of subject material um, in order to kind of do the research that you're training to do but at the same time it does feel like some programs um they expect you to really just work for three years while you're doing your coursework I didn't have weekends I had very few evenings where I wasn't in the library or in my room just just working um and that is largely that's the the just the the courses that I was taking. Um, I took every single semester for three years, I took Hebrew, Sumerian and Akkadian language classes, which is, I mean, by itself, that's an immense amount of work. Then an archaeology class and a history class. So I did uh, Mesopotamian archaeology and then we did either Egypt, uh, Egyptian history, Mesopotamian history or Syro-Palestinian history, depending on what year of the program you were in, which is is really necessary because these regions are so interconnected and their history is so interconnected that really if you're trying to understand one, you need to have at least a basic understanding of, of what's going on in the other places as well. Um, 
So those are just like the basic courses that I had to take. And on top of that, you have, what are you interested in? What are you planning on writing on? Is there a class being offered that semester that is relevant to you that you, you should take um, for your own like edification and, and experience? Um, and even if you audit that class and you're not expecting to receive a grade afterwards, you still need to do the reading to keep up with what's going on in, in discussions. Um, so that's like an extra step. And then uh, a seriology requires knowledge of how to read French and German. So most PhD programs will have you take a reading exam. And, and when you take that varies, but generally you have to take them by the end of your third year before they let you then pass your comprehensive or take your comprehensive exams and hopefully pass them. Uh, so, and then once you've taken these exams, which are for me, it was like essentially a week of day long exams. Um, and they're not fun. They're not fun. I think my so my husband has a PhD and we went to the same institution and his Sumerian exam, I think he stayed in the library until like 2am or something crazy like that, just making sure he'd finished everything. They don't let you do that anymore. <laughs> they have a specific cutoff time. They're like, okay, you work from this time to this time, and then you go home and you sleep. Um, so that was an interesting experience. And then once you've done that, you're kind of put into your your thesis research. And that's that's how the semesters look. But then during the summer, you're required, well... You're, you're encouraged, strongly encouraged to do things like go on archaeological digs, because again, what we're working with is the product of archaeology and understanding um, how that process works and where these things come from is, is really, really important. Um, so you're encouraged to go on archaeological digs or to apply to research fellowships, to work with material culture or to complete side projects or help professors with their projects. So like the work doesn't actually stop until your comps. And then you're like, okay, I've passed. I'm going to take a month to like, remember how to breathe and sleep because I don't feel like I've slept for three years. And then after that, you're, you're kind of into researching for your, your thesis, which is it, for me. And I think for a lot of other people, this is, this is what you've been waiting for because you get to choose your direction. You get to choose what you're looking into and from what angle you're looking into and maybe look at what theory you're going to use. And, and this is like the, the academic nuts and bolts that I love. Um, so that was definitely the best time for me. Um, the problem, the personal problem that I had was that uh, two years, uh, maybe a year in to my thesis, Actually, no, it wasn't even a year and it was maybe six months. My husband's got custody of his two young children. So we couldn't live in the city with them because we're both graduate students. We have no money. Um, we can't afford a place big enough for all of us. So we moved out of the city to live close to his family uh, and essentially rent a house from his dad, um, which was a godsend because we, we wouldn't have been able to afford to live otherwise. Um, so yeah, we got he got custody of his girls and he'd graduated by this point recently and, and he was working full time because it's a thing you have to do in the real world. You have to, you know, work. So he's working full time. I am working full time on my dissertation, which I'm doing from home. And I'm also now suddenly a stay at home mum for a two and a half year old. And uh, she would have been eight and an eight year old at that point, um, which meant that I 
didn't really have any time to work because there's a two and a half year old at home all day. So that slowed things down considerably. And then I had my son a year or so later. So then I have a like a actually it was more than a year later. Uh, So then my youngest daughter is in school and now I have a baby at home, which is amazing. And I love it. And I really enjoy being a parent, but I still have this dissertation to finish and we have no childcare. My family is across an ocean. His family are all very busy people. Um, We can't afford daycare. So I'm like, oh my God, how do people who are parents complete PhD programs? Um, And I was trying really hard to get as much done as I could when he was sleeping and and after bedtime when everyone else was in bed. Um, And it kind of got to the point where I realized that I was miserable and that the work I was doing, it felt like this weight around my neck. It didn't feel like the happy, interesting thing that kind of gave me life that it was before. So I made the very, very difficult decision to actually say, "I, I can't, I actually can't do this. I am only human. And if I keep doing this, if I keep trying to do full-time parenting and full-time PhD student, something will break and it will be me. Um, And I don't want that to happen. So I, and like, I talked this over with Josh, my husband, and then we went to bed and then I woke up the next morning and I just, I felt like so light I felt like I could breathe again. And I, I emailed my advisors and I said, like, I, I need to come in and, and talk to you. And just so you're not horribly shocked, here is where the conversation is going to go. And I went in uh, that week and I talked to both of them and they were fantastic. They were very supportive. Um, the the professor who'd been my, my advisor through the whole PhD essentially said, and this is something I'd say to other people when, when I hear that they're thinking about leaving. He said, don't let yourself be held hostage to a decision you made seven years ago. It's it's like a decade of my life. You are a different person. You have different dreams and aspirations. And the decision you made then may not be the correct decision for you now, which felt very, very true. And he said, don't think of it as a failure. Just getting to this point is a huge achievement. You've gained all of this knowledge. You've accomplished all of these things and they are worth doing in and of themselves without then getting the like the PhD attached to that. And the university was very helpful. They said I had the option of like taking like a two-year leave of absence. Um, and I essentially said that that's really kind of you and I definitely appreciate that, but I'm not done having babies yet. I want more kids. So by the time I am looking at coming back, I'm going to be in the exact same position. I will have another young child at home and I I won't have the time to dedicate to this that I really need to. So I I ended up just saying, thank you. It's been a a great experience. I really appreciate everything. I am stopping here. So I came out of it with another master's degree. And one day, maybe I'll go and do a PhD when the children are all grown and in school. and, And if I do, great. And if I don't, you know what? That's okay. Because something that has been made very clear to me through my work with um, my YouTube channel and the nonprofit that I run, my worth to the field does not depend on me having a PhD. I feel like I have achieved more through public outreach and through public scholarship without a PhD than I would have achieved through going, finishing the PhD, getting an adjuncting job, going tenure track if I could. I've been of more use. I've found more value in the work I'm doing now than I think I I would have found 
as like a, a traditional academic. Yeah, you know, you made the heart-wrenching decision to leave your PhD program, which I can only imagine would be very difficult because that is a significant amount of of time and energy that you sunk your life into thinking that you were going to do this thing just so you could have the shiny piece of paper that says, I'm very smart. (laughs) I promise. Look, someone Um, else thinks it too. It's that nice external validation yeah. thing. You know, who needs that? That's stupid. <laughs> but okay, so then so then you turned into more public outreach, digital humanities, reaching people digitally through mm-hmm. YouTube. So for everyone listening who is unaware of what digital Hammurabi is, would you mind talking about it a little bit? You know, what you do, what you hope to get out of it personally, as well mm-hmm. as just we all know, you know, you know, you're, you're doing good for the masses, but you know, what do you get out of it personally? Sure. And, you know, talk about the value of, if you're not going into academia, I think there's this stigma of like, oh, then you're not valuable. Like, like, why would we listen to you? Cause Mm. your word doesn't matter when we have these PhDs over here who are the experts in their field. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe talking about dispelling that notion a little bit. Yeah, sure. So we, we started Digital Hammurabi as a YouTube channel, actually right after my husband's graduated and right after we moved out of Baltimore. And he had gone on another YouTube channel to do an interview on, like, I think, ancient. No, it was the flood narrative. He was doing an interview about the flood and like, was it a real event that was then kind of transformed into a literary motif or was it just literature? And so he had a great time talking about that. And people in the comments section were saying, this is really interesting stuff. Does this guy have his own YouTube channel? And I was sitting there thinking, okay. We, we should do this. Why not? We should do this. So as he was still doing his interview, actually, I told him, Josh, we're starting a YouTube channel now. And he going, oh, okay. <laughs> because he, so he hasn't been able to stay like officially in the field. He doesn't teach. We can't move. Obviously we have joint custody with, with his wife or his ex-wife, sorry. So she lives just down the road from us and we get on super well. It's really nice, but we like, we can't move. We can't take the girls away from their mother. So we're kind of stuck in rural Southern Maryland, which isn't like great for teaching opportunities. It's not like we can just stay here and, and build stellar teaching careers. So he has, he's gone into working for the government, which is something that actually a lot of PhDs do when they finish and they decide, actually, I don't want to go the academia route because it's, it's too disruptive for my family, or I just don't feel like moving to Helsinki for a year. I'd love to move to Helsinki for a year. I think that would be super cool. So he was he was working. He didn't have a chance really to use his PhD. And if you've done something for that long, generally speaking, it's part of you and you love it. And even after like the post-traumatic stress of doing a PhD, you're like, I miss this and I want to use it. And I think it's interesting. And I think maybe other people will think it's interesting. And something that we both individually noted is that classics has a really good big presence in like communal thought. And Egypt is similar. Everyone knows about the pyramids. Everyone knows about the pharaohs. Fewer people know about like cigarettes and exactly what cuneiform is and about the amazing like literature and archaeology that there is for the region. So we thought, okay, we'll just publicize as much as we can and and maybe someone will be interested um so that was nearly three years ago and we have nearly twenty four thousand subscribers on youtube which is not amazing but you know for a really niche section of history is pretty damn good so 
things have slowed down with COVID because we have obviously children at home doing schoolwork. I can't have someone come in and watch my little one while I'm trying to do video editing or write video scripts. So things are still going, but they're a little slower and I'm I'm kind of itching to get back to it and get back to like reading things and sharing what I've read and saying, look at this, it's so cool. Did you know that this exists? So yeah, we have the YouTube channel. At the moment, what we mainly do is similar to what you do, Lexi, we interview academics, usually Mesopotamian specialists. We do some Egypt and and biblical stuff as well. And just talk to them about what they do and why they do it and kind of explain it to me like I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about so that's a lot of fun and honestly I think I learn probably as much as anyone else because you once you get into this specialization like I can talk about royal inscriptions for a decent amount of time I can't tell you anything really about Mesopotamian science so this Saturday we've got someone coming on to talk about astronomy and astrology and it's going to be fascinating because I don't really know an awful lot about that. So yes, we do interviews and we do language classes. We have a Sumerian language series, which is, I think, the most popular series on the whole channel. And then in conjunction with that, we do, or at least when we have time, we put out kind of popular level books. We self-publish them and we have a like a Sumerian grammar, like an introduction made for people who have no understanding of ancient languages, because a lot of what is or was available before that is reference grammars, which are super useful if you're translating through a text and you come across a verbal form that you don't understand. You go to the reference grammar, you look it up and you're like, oh, that's what that is. Great. Now I know. If you're just dipping your toes in Sumerian, that's really unhelpful because you don't actually know enough to use them. So Josh and I jointly wrote one and that's very very popular and he does a lot of like biblical kind of explanation work like one of his his other books is um did the old testament endorse slavery which to me is an obvious of course it did but lots of people argue very strongly against it so he kind of goes through the evidence that is often presented as as kind of like a What does this actually say? How does this fit into the ancient Near Eastern historical context? How does the laws, how do the laws in the Bible relate to Mesopotamian slave laws? And just kind of looking at it more holistically to try and give people accessible information. I think that's, that's probably the bulk of what we do is making as much as we can accessible because a lot of Mesopotamia is trapped not necessarily trapped, but contained in books that are expensive or not written for the beginner, um, or just you you just don't know that they exist. So we know that they exist because we went through grad school. So we're going to go and find them. We're going to read them, and then we're going to tell you what they say. So that's yeah, that's that's a very long rambly answer to to what we do on Digital Hammurabi. And in conjunction with that, I also run a, a small nonprofit called Humans Against Poor Scholarships, which started out as a summer scholarship fund for PhD students working on the ancient Near East. And we're just about to wrap up our third year of applications. And then once the applications are all in, I interview all the applicants live on YouTube, which is not intimidating at all. And they do super well. And it's amazing. And hearing like all of the research that 
is is just being done is is fascinating um but they tell us about their research and our audience can ask them questions and then everybody who donates to haps who donates to the charity gets to essentially vote for the research they most want to see funded so then like the top i think this year we've got enough to fund four students so we give two thousand dollars to four students based on the votes they receive so it's it's kind of like the voice or something but with academics which i think is is inherently cooler i don't think anyone else agrees with me but i think it's far cooler (laughs) i would agree are you kidding like there's way too many like the voice type shows i'm just like oh they're boring now you want to broadcast people competing talking about their research hell yeah yeah, i'll watch that i'll watch that all day (laughs) and all night but okay first thing i'll say is the fact that you have that many followers for such a niche topic that most people doesn't even know exists is actually quite impressive because um thank you i was just like you know how many people i don't know how many people on the internet are randomly gonna go and pay attention to old old dead people and 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 (laughs) royal inscriptions and and other things and then when i see i'm like oh there's quite a crowd for this a surprising amount of people will do that yeah like people are hungry for this which is awesome to see um but you know how much uh, time would you say you spend on also kind of dispelling the idea that if you have a phd or if you've gotten Mm -hmm. most of a phd you are suddenly an expert in all of mesopotamian history or all of us, all aspects of Assyriology versus what we know as scholars, which is I'm good at this very, very, very specific thing. Yeah. So don't ask me about something I don't yeah. study. It, that that happens quite a lot, actually. And um, Josh actually gets it more than I do because he does a lot of interviews on other people's channels. Um, and he'll very regularly get questions that are completely out of anything he's researched recently so his his uh, phd thesis was on uh the liturgical unorthographic emesol liturgical texts from the city of kish emesol is like a subsection of sumerian it is like the more obscure area of an already obscure language and an already obscure field um unorthographic emesol is emesol that isn't even written properly I say properly. It's not written conventionally. Let's be nice about it. And and from this one particular city. So he, if you want to know about liturgy and Emerson, he will. He is your guy. He will talk to you about it for a long time. Um, and he did a lot of research into like um, Mesopotamian school practices. And so within that dissertation, so he, yeah, he can talk about that. That is what he would consider himself a specialist in. Since graduating, he's also done a lot of personal research into various aspects of the Hebrew Bible. He has a um, a master's degree in, in biblical studies, so it's not like completely left wing. And actually, we did we both minored in Hebrew Bible at grad school. So um, like he's a special. I think I would consider him a specialist in that also. But people kind of hear that and assume it means specialist in the whole of Sumerian and the whole of Hebrew, which is is an, an awful lot. Um, and then if he's talking about Hebrew and the Hebrew Bible, people will then assume, oh, well, the, the Bible, all of the Bible. 
Um, which is again, less, less so. He does have training in New Testament studies, but it's from a while ago. And unless he sat down and really looked through journals and researched something, he's not going to feel comfortable talking about it. And like, I, I can talk about, I can talk about literature. I can talk about royal inscriptions. I can talk about the history, like very generally and broad strokes. Um, I can't talk to you about economics. So if you ask me about Mesopotamian economics, I'm like, um, I don't know. I can find you someone who does, <laughs> most likely, but I can't answer your question. Um, and it's it's kind of a running joke, both on the channel and and on the channels where Josh is um, a regular guest, that we are both very comfortable saying, I'm really sorry, like, that's not my field, essentially. I don't know. I can give you my general impression as an historian, as an historiologist, this is what I think, but I don't have any evidence to back that up. And I have not researched this particular topic. So you should not take what I'm saying as the gospel truth. And generally speaking, people are very, very receptive to that, um, which is, is nice. They do understand that because of how our educations have worked, we can't talk off the cuff about... Like, I couldn't talk to you about the Neo-Babylonian Empire, except to say that there was one. Um, and, like, roughly the time period it was in and the rough geographical area. That's all I'm going to do. I can't I can't talk to you about the political history. I can't talk to you really about anything that, that happened or, like, who the kings were. Because I, it's just, it's far too late in history for me, uh, which is a very weird thing to say. Ask me about the third millennium. I'm good for the third, most of the second millennium. Anything after that, bleh. I know it happened. Um, and I can point you in the right direction to find answers for you. Uh, but I, I can't I can't answer anything in detail. And yeah, pe- people are receptive to that. Um, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why I like getting specialists on the channel to talk about their own research, because then it gives our viewers the opportunity to say, hey, you work in this time period. What do you think about this question it it works it works a lot better (laughs) so how many times do people come to you with like popular references or people who are in games and they just go i played civilization i was ashurbanipal tell me about him go actually not that often we do and actually never never with video games actually We, we have been asked about um anime there's an anime series that has Gilgamesh in that I keep meaning to watch and then never find the time to do it. And someone has asked me what I thought about it. And I'm like, I haven't watched it. I would probably enjoy it very much because I like anime and I like Gilgamesh. And I mean, you put them together. Well, wonderful. Why wouldn't I enjoy that? Um, but I, like, I, I, I'm very busy. I don't have time to just sit down and, and watch several seasons of an anime to give you my vague impression about, about what, what I think. We occasionally get people fact checking or asking us to fact check especially on twitter um there's a we've just had easter so this is super relevant there's a meme that goes around every single easter that uh tells you with with a lot of authority actually uh and i think this stems from a scientific american uh and yeah a scientific american article that was not written by an Assyriologist, but it tells you very confidently that actually the celebration of Easter is directly associated with the goddess Ishtar, um, who is a Mesopotamian deity, and that her symbols are the rabbit and the egg, and none of this is true. <laughs> so, it, it kind of, you see things like that, and you think, that 
I don't I don't think I don't think that's quite correct. I'm going to go and do some research to make sure I am right. Um, and then I corrected the meme. And now I see my correction <laughs> popping up around Twitter every Easter. Um, so for those who are listening, Easter has nothing to do with Ishtar. Um, I've been reliably informed that it's actually uh, related to a, Germa- a, a Germanic fertility goddess. But no, not definitely not Ishtar. Then, I mean, there might be very, very tangentially some threads that kind of carried through Mesopotamia into Greece and then was influencing Christianity but it like it's it's not a strong connection okay I learned something new I'm always learning something new so it's great so I learned another new thing today now I have to ask because you you you've done it now you've asked you've you've mentioned you like anime so oh no for people listening who watch or love the Hayao Miyazaki films not sure if you're aware but Castle in the Sky when Ah, going up there the yes the ancient writing is cuneiform so do you Mm -hmm. ever have someone asking you about that like can you translate it can you read this uh I so I haven't had anyone ask that I've had people point it out and say oh look isn't this interesting I'm like it it really is interesting (laughs) the problem is it's the wrong kind of cuneiform for me to read So for those who don't know, cuneiform was in use for several thousand years. It started in like 3200 BCE and its use gets carried all the way through to the first century AD, which is a long time. And it was used by several different cultures to record. So cuneiform is is just a writing system. It's not a language. It's, It's like us using the Latin alphabet to write English and German and French and Spanish. It, they're not all the same language. They use the same writing system. So cuneiform gets used by lots of different languages, lots of different cultures throughout like 3,000 years of history. So understandably, how it looks and how it's used changes substantially over that time period. And uh, I'm probably wrong because I'm not looking at it. Um, but I think the the cuneiform used by uh, Miyazaki, is it looks like it's old Persian or Neo-Assyrian. It's a much, much later version of cuneiform than I'm used to reading because I did a lot of kind of old Babylonian or early dynastic, which is like 3000, 2000-ish BCE, um, which is is a lot earlier. And yeah, so I, I suspect they just took the script and thought this is really cool and kind of imposed it into the cartoon, which I know is very sad. And it looks fantastic. Um, but I, I strongly suspect it doesn't actually say anything. That's unfortunate. I I will um, ask around though. And if I'm wrong, I'll let you know. Yes, yes, please do. Because not that, you know, I if it says something great, I just would find it fun to know if it says something. But, you know, not a big deal. But okay, <laughs> so now that I've totally just asked that, we see a billion because uh, I, I, I love this so much that I want to come back to it. So we see mm-hmm. a billion uh, popular culture, like representations of the ancient world. There's so many ancient Greece things, mm-hmm. so many, even more Roman things and a lot of Egyptian things. Um, why is it, do you think, that we don't see a lot of Mesopotamian Assyrian things in popular culture? So I think part of that is it's a relatively new field. Um, like the study of Greece and Rome has been going for a good long time. Cuneiform was only deciphered officially in 1852, which is like obviously a few centuries ago now, but in the grand scheme of academia is not that long. So it makes us a new field. 
we're also very small um but we try really hard uh, <laughs> uh so it's, it's a small field it's a new field and it's not I would say, and I don't think this is a controversial statement, I would say that Western civilization is kind of built on this um, idea of direct descent from the classics. Whether or not that's true is is another debate entirely, but I think, and, and whether or not you see it every day is, is, is debatable, but uh, I do think the classics is was fundamental to a lot of Western cultures. So it's talked about more, it's included more in the schools. You see it in the architecture as you're walking through DC. It's it's everywhere. And because of that, people are just more familiar with it. Uh, so if they're looking at, hey, we need a mythological figure for this video game, they're more likely to go to the classics, I think, than try and find something different because that is something that people are already familiar with. They don't have to, like, you don't have to explain what a Minotaur is. If you're playing through Assassin's Creed, um, and you're like, oh, I have to go and slay a minotaur. Okay, I know what a minotaur is. If you have to go and slay Humbaba, it's like, the he- what the hell is Humbaba? I I don't know what to expect. <laughs> I don't know like where this thing came from. I don't know why it's relevant. And there's a whole load of backstory that then the game designers would have to unpack. Um, and I think Egypt, to a certain extent, is very similar. I I'm not sure that you can say it's as foundational maybe in public consciousness to Western civilization. But I think it's it's much more familiar to a Western audience. Um, we've been excavating there and kind of attacking Egypt for a while. So like we have a shitload of their stuff in our museums. Um, so it, it, it's again, something that people are just more familiar with. You don't need to explain oh, look, it's a sphinx. You don't need to say, now this is what a sphinx is and this is why it's here and you have to answer these. Like people already know that. So I I think Mesopotamia requires a lot more work. Um, I think there is also, and I'm kind of just spitballing here. I suspect there might be a thing going back to the biblical issues. The Assyrians are the bad guys. Like they're the, undeniably, they're the bad guys. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God uses them to do shit, but they're the bad guys. You don't want to be the Mesopotamians. So I think there's, at least early on, there was kind of this association of Mesopotamia with like a despotic, like Orientalist Eastern milieu that, again, isn't real, but I think is is how early academics kind of viewed it. So then it, it doesn't get taken up for popular culture in, in the same way that like the classics does because you've got like Plato and Sophocles and the invention of democracy and and it's it's all this wonderful kind of pure um this this is who we are as Westerners. Um and then like look at 300 sorry I'm going all over the shop here but if you look at the movie 300 you've got the Persians and they're like whoa I love the movie. I love the visuals. I think it's beautiful, but it's it's super racist because <laughs> um, you look you look at the Persians and it's like they're all half naked and covered in gold paints and and is this dude a dude or is he a woman or or is he both? And oh my god, it's just so terrifying. Um, so that's that's kind of like where you get like the Persians and and the Mesopotamian area. That's how they get represented. I would say a little less so now, but especially like in the early 19th century, that's kind of what you're looking at. And that's not something that people want to take up 
so much in popular culture. Um, I am praying to the gods of gaming that Assassin's Creed will one day do Mesopotamia because I think there is a lot of potential there. Um, And the more that people do stuff like make podcasts and make YouTube channels and kind of talk about the amazing things that Mesopotamia has given us. And for me, it's really encouraging that it does come into like middle schools and people say, oh, look, this is the first writing. This is monumental. Um, The more that happens, I think the more it will be included in, in popular culture and like mainstream consciousness. But yeah. You know, I think you you mentioned a lot of things definitely there, but all of them good. I mean, yeah, I think there's that aspect of it's more biblical than some of the other stuff, um, for sure. But I think there's actually just a lot of appetite. And I, I don't think it would be as hard to drum up interest mm-hmm. as we think it is. Because I, I, I think we use that as a way to psych ourselves out. Oh, no, because then all this requires every explanation. No, and I'm like, do you know how many people and, yeah. just like throw in random mythology and because it's in a game or in a film, Someone that's really Google cool. It. Yeah. You'll Google it or you'll just be like, okay. And, and like, if you have a half decent team who at least consults a historian to get something mm-hmm. right, I, th- I think that's fine, right? I, when you put it in pop culture, I think it's just a way to spark interest, right? You, mm-hmm. Right, like no one is going to go to the gaming industry or the film industry really to learn unless it's a documentary. I mean, I, I think I, I have this conversation so often now. It's like they make edutainment. They're supposed to give you a starting point mm-hmm. so that you'll be like, oh, this is really, really cool. I want to learn more. And then you go and learn more. So yeah. I don't know. Um, And I think, you know, they put Mesopotamia into they've been putting into games like the civilization games. Mm-hmm. I mean, OK, not everyone plays, you know, like time based strategy games. And I understand that that's a very like specific subset of people who would do that. Yeah. But, but if like, you're into the like the, the actual history, then stuff like that is really great. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's already there for you. Mm-hmm. And 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 then there's always the like really fun reference. I don't know. I, I notice it because I'm me and I'm weird, but most of my friends when we're watching like the matrix they don't realize when Lawrence Fishburne's character is like oh this is my hovercraft and you know what is it 2090 whatever it's called the Nebuchadnezzar yeah. and I'm like hey. hey and then most people are just like <laughs> what okay nice name cool they're like they, they're like that's a nice name and, and I'm mm-hmm. like don't you realize what this is I'm like did he have to name the, his ship the Hammurabi this is really significant yeah. Like for people to understand what it is. Yeah. But um, I don't know that. And then I was really lucky uh, growing up in Chicago. I had the Oriental Institute. Oh, right, yeah. You know, like a half right hour there. drive down south. And I grew up and I would go to that museum for field trips. And then in high school, I swear I lived in that museum because I would just like go after school and sit there mm-hmm. and just look at the beautiful artifacts. And I mean, they are stunning. Like, I would just, you know, sit in front gorgeous. of things. And, and then my friends would always get bored and, and abandon me because they'd be like, why do you want to stand in front of the Lama Sioux for 20 straight minutes and just stare at it? I'm like, do you not want to just stare at it? Have you not seen this thing? Like, I just want to stare at it for, give me just like a half an hour to sit and ponder every single, you know, aspect. Yeah. And they, they get bored. And Have you like, ever counted the Lama Sioux's legs? This is a I super weird tried, question. I'm going somewhere with it. I tried, and I think I've always counted, was it four? It's no, got six? one extra, depending on where you're looking at it, because they, they carved them so that if you look face on, it's standing there with its two legs. But then if you kind of walk around the side and look at it, 
it's striding forward. So it's got two at the front, but then it's got three at the side. So you can yes. like, you can see it walking or you can see it standing still. It's, it's like, it's super cool. Oh. I love it. The, oh, the, the I masters love it are just great. I just, I love, okay. I totally, I was going to not bring this up because it's a terrible film but i need to now because i'm inspired <laughs> and this is what happens when you put academics together who love and nerd out about ancient things i was watching the 19 what is it 57 i believe clash of the titans like the, the mm-hmm. original one the original yeah it's so terrible but did you notice that, like, instead of being an accurate representation of ancient Greece, it's more like a hodgepodge of ancient cultural art, just like, Ooh. like shoved. Okay, because I, so I haven't watched it in years and years. Okay, okay, I need because to go and watch it again now. If anyone wants to watch this movie, one, it's like comically bad. So CGI by then is not great, but it's better than what they because they use like stop motion animation so it looks like the old like 1930s king kong like kitschy bad animation where you can clearly tell things are photoshopped it's like terrible but when he's walking around they're like this is the mystical land this is the city of joppa and we're going to save it and you're clearly supposed to be in ancient greece because it's perseus yeah he walks into that city first thing i see a lamasu i'm like that's not Greek. Okay. <laughs> keep, like, keep it moving. You've, you've just collected ancient shit and put it around to make it yes. feel old. Yes. Because That's then amazing. it's like the very next shot is like the winged statuette of the goddess Ishtar. Like that winged one. The plaque of the night. Yeah. Yeah. So then I was like, that's definitely not Greek moving on. And then <laughs> you see the walls of the city and then they do a close up when the main character, when, when Perseus like walks in and I'm, I look at that wall and I go, that literally looks like the Ishtar gate. That literally is. You've just stolen it from Berlin and kind of. I, so I was just like, this that's bothers hilarious. me I have so to watch much. this again now. Yes, you must, because I was just like, this is a hot. So I'm like, so they're clearly counting on people with no knowledge of the ancient world to watch us and just go, oh, that's so cute. That's nice. Mm. I'm like, any scholar watching this worth their salt is going to go, why? Why? <laughs> this is ancient Greece in the like supposedly whatever, you know, sixth, fifth century, whatever time they want to set this. And I'm like, is this here? He's mystically oh. in Mesopotamia. Like three different time periods of Mesopotamia as well. So that's saying something. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So if you're not familiar with things that make uh, ancient study scholars heads almost Cringe. explode, um, go watch Clash of the Titans. It's it's quite entertaining if you take it for what it is, which is like a kitschy and stupid, ridiculous, you can't even keep a straight face. But it's a great watch. I highly recommend it. Uh, and then watch it and and then talk to classicists and um, Assyriologists about it because it's gets even more fun when you (laughs) consult them about it um so you know you you've probably noticed in this country we kind of devalue our humanities and um we don't like to fund them because Mm. a lot of people think that they're useless and well the thing is lexi you may not know this when you go and you do like a liberal arts degree essentially your professors make you a communist that's what happens it's like it's facts it's did not know that (laughs) did not know oh my god and 
Wow. So I, I, I need to go ask my friends now. Do you feel like you've been turned into a communist? Are you secret commie now? <laughs> oh, yep. man. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we devalue our humanities and it's like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, is it the same kind of deal in the UK? Yes. Is it- yeah. So the reason I came to the States to do a PhD is I couldn't afford to do it in the UK. Um, because there is literally one source of funding in the UK. Generally, universities will not fund humanities PhD students. You have to apply for external funding through the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And they have like three grants a year. It's super competitive. And if you don't get it, then you're just, you're paying for yourself. Um, I mean, it's also a cheaper experience in the long run because you're not paying for three years of classes. Um, you're paying for your three years of writing. But I like, I didn't have that cash to hand, so I, I couldn't do it. In the US, at least, most places that offer seriology will fund at least your first three years, which is it is still problematic because then you've got a bunch of students who have finished their coursework and now they have to pay and keep paying in order to finish their PhD. Um, yes, funding is not good. It is not good. And it, it becomes more tricky when you've got things like an unofficial requirement to like go to Syria and dig for a summer and do an archaeological dig because a lot of departments will give you like they'll have travel money for you or they'll have some kind of stipend but then a lot don't because they they just don't have any money so then you've got students who are stuck either trying to work out how to scrape together a few thousand dollars to sustain themselves over the summer and travel or just do, do you like stay home and, and work in a library and try and save some money for next summer? Or, or really, like, how do you do this? Um, and it's you, you kind of get into this horrible cycle where you can't do your schoolwork because you are working a job to pay for the schoolwork that you can't do. And you have to keep doing that because it takes you longer and longer to finish your PhD. So you you get people who are like adjuncting three classes a semester to afford to pay for their tuition and to afford to pay for their own living expenses. And maybe they'll get an hour of their PhD work done at like midnight, which then means they take one, two, three more years to graduate so that they're spending more money on tuition. And it's it's not a good situation. Um, and actually that's that's why we started the the nonprofit that we did because so many universities will pay students if you're being so if you're being paid as a student a lot of the time you're only paid during the semester so then you like live on air during the summer which is actually quite difficult to do i found out um and generally speaking landlords like it if you pay them rent over the summer also um so we were like okay how do we make this a little bit easier for students who are trying desperately to do research over the summer to write their phd to like write their theses to do the research that will let them graduate how do we like help them so we're like let's, let's just give them some money and it's uh like we don't attach strings to it it's not a travel fund it's not like an archival fund it's you take this $2,000, you, 
you use it how you need to you can pay your run with it you can use it to buy food you can use it to go to conferences or to go and dig somewhere but you don't have to like really whatever is most helpful to getting your research done and helping you graduate sooner um but it's like there just there just isn't any money and getting money is competitive and then even after you graduate it's like how do you find a job and how do you find a job that lets you especially if you have and I I talk about this a lot because I feel like it's it's important but if you have young children you don't necessarily want to move them three times in three years so that you can get a tenure track position somewhere if you're super lucky maybe there's a fellowship in the city you already live in so you take that fellowship for a year and then you apply to a local college and then you you get a job and that is fantastic but it doesn't work that way an awful lot and I know early career researchers who are like they don't have children they don't have partners they're going to Europe for two years they're going to Japan for another year then maybe they're coming back to the states or they're going back to Europe to like get teaching positions and it's it's really hard because that's what you have to do to like to find the money to to survive um it is it is not good Let's put it that way. And it's it's so sad because then you see people saying, oh, we need to teach we need to teach students how to think critically. And, oh, we need to teach students how to, you know, uh, question sources. And, and I'm like, yeah, you, you know what does that? You know that the people who, who teach those skills are the PhD kind of putting out of work because you won't pay them. Uh, so, yes, liberal arts educations will teach you those things, but not if you close the departments down. Yes. And it's interesting. So I've been seeing this like wave of STEM is the future. So let's put all of our resources Mm -hmm. and funding into those programs. So one thing I harp on a lot is you can find the applicability argument kind of everywhere you look. Well, I can because I have my background Mm -hmm. and I'm very deft and they taught me how to spot where I can use my classics background. And I suspect most ancient scholars can as well for Mm -hmm. how this would apply to something very contemporary. But for those people who just can't or don't or whatever or think it's unimportant what other career paths what things can you do today that would benefit from a background in Assyriology or classics or anything in the ancient studies mm-hmm. that is not going into academia so and not starting your own youtube channel i will say <laughs> well i mean that would be my number one um but obviously youtube can't support all of us i wish it could that would be amazing um Although having just complained about money, YouTube does not pay very well. So I, as a career path, generally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. So like I said earlier, actually, the federal government very much likes PhDs in this kind of area because it, it teaches you how to use data, how to think about data, um, and kind of it teaches you to write as well, honestly, which is is an important skill for many aspects and many career paths, uh, including government. But it's I'm going to have to think now because uh, so much of what I do is focused on like, bringing academics to other people. I'm not great at thinking about what academics can do that isn't academia. But no, so federal government, there are also like commercial archaeologists who do things like go on and, and dig at sites prior to building works to make sure they're not digging on top of something. I think this is also like things like nonprofit work and journalism. I mean, obviously with journalism, you 
probably then have to recertify as a specific journalist. But it gives you a way of thinking about the world and like a, a really long view of a particular region. Like my my understanding of Middle Eastern politics is is appalling, um, mainly because I don't have the time just to sit down and read all the things that I want to, because it's fascinating and I really want to know more. But I have a really long understanding of the history of the region. So if I was going into journalism, probably something along there would be what I'd be interested in because it, I don't know, it just, it, it gives you this, this long perspective of, of a region and, and, and what's going on. Um, I think it would probably be very useful for politics because it lets you think about uh, lots of like interactions between people and between people groups and, and how that, kind of how that changes and you see things repeating like Mesopotamia one of the things that they often tell you is that it's a history of expansion and contraction and you do see that looking at at the history you get like these little city-states and then they expand into like an empire and then something happens and then the empire falls apart and then it's a lot of little city-states again and then it's another empire um and actually, it's been very interesting living through COVID and watching my Twitter feed because you you have people like uh, Dr. Sarah Parkak and Dr. Eric Klein, who are an Egyptologist and a, uh, a Near Eastern archaeologist, respectively, looking at this through the lens of systems collapse, which is a, an historical lens that talks about all the different things that go into making like essentially dark ages and how like plagues and political upset and social unrest all kind of coalesce in one specific time and then everything falls apart and actually a very good book for that is um, Eric Klein's 1177 BC I think it's the year civilization collapsed or something similar but he's a very engaging writer he's a lovely man as well so looking at that kind of thing and kind of using it to understand modern politics and modern policy and, and, and what's going on there, I think is, is really interesting and useful. Um, and one more before I, I forget, there's a, um, and she is an academic, so it's not, not like an extra academic field, but what she does is very interesting. Um, Dr. Erin Thompson um, teaches the law of, I can't remember exactly, but she does like art history and law and the legality around looted objects and um, things like that. And her Twitter account is is fascinating. If anyone is on Twitter, definitely look for her. But she's done a lot of writing for um, like online magazines and um, and newspapers about this debate over statues and whether we keep Confederate statues up or if we take them down and and really what that means. And, and because of her background, because she's an art historian and a law professor, she's got this really unique perspective. And how she writes about it is absolutely fascinating and essentially saying, look, this isn't the first time this has happened. And also, this is not how history is remembered. We don't put statues up to remember history. It People think we do. Actually, we don't. How many times do you walk past a statue and just kind of completely ignore it's there? It doesn't matter if it's a statue of Columbus or if it's a statue of a kid holding a balloon. It's a statue. It's in a park. Okay, cool. But as a as a collective whole, what we choose uh, to put up is actually really important. And it, it's less about remembering history and more about constructing a current identity for our society. Uh, and actually, if if we want to construct a whole load of Civil War monuments commemorating the Confederates, then that's that's one very specific cultural identity than if a community decides we're going to have like 
eight children with balloons just dotted about this park. I'm, I'm making the balloon thing up. I'm, I don't think well on my feet, uh, but it, like it's two very different social identities and, and kind of understanding that I think you need a humanities background to kind of think that way and to look at claims that people make and say, actually, I see where you're coming from. That seems very intuitive, but that's not right. And this is why it's not right. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. Those are usually, well, except for the last one, those are those are two that I regularly talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. I joke, honestly, about being a walking cliche, right? I'm a classics major who went right into politics because <laughs> that's my home. But at the end of each podcast, I ask each guest if they will read the Shelley version of Ozymandias. So if you could just read through it and then it doesn't need to be the most erudite thing you've ever said but this is more quick reaction to what you read does this po- like what does this poem mean what is it trying to tell us does it spark any sort of thinking i don't know yeah i would hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do my best. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on this lifeless thing. The hands that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Osmandius, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And I'm going to say, I suspect this is an answer you get all the time, it doesn't really matter what you do because time is just going to erase it. So be nice, be kind, because if you're going to be a dick, no one's going to remember you anyway. But if you're nice and kind, your statue may survive. But more importantly, people will remember you for being nice and kind and not for having this dickish personality. Oh, that is probably the best (laughs) summation, shortest, best summation of it. I love it because you've just encapsulated everything that could take quite a while to sum up in a pretty bow. Um, But yeah, you you got uh, this is why I love talking to ancient scholars, because you guys, you you know, right away the meaning of this poem. Oh, it's wonderful. So with that, the last question I actually ask people is. Considering everything in 
modern day society, all the things we have. If we're thinking about the poem as, yes, this commentary on the ephemeral nature of power, political power, just on on things, um, the fleeting sort of memento mori vibes I get from it, we will mm-hmm. die. Is there a modern Ozymandias? Like it could be a person, a place, a theoretical answer. So the way I frame it is, if you were to think about our culture right now, if someone found it or saw it, or if we thought about it in 2000 years, what is so great that we thought would never go away, but now is dust? So I have two answers. I have one answer, which is, I mean, I don't think everyone thinks he's so great, but I think he thinks he's so great. And I think he will crumble into dust. And that is, sorry, more children. Um, Yes. So, yes, he's building this empire. It's political, it's business, it's financial. And eventually he will be crumbled. And I think like something that I've been thinking about recently is how long the empires that I study last and then they're just, they're gone. And 2000 years later, we're digging them up out of the the mounds of, of Iraq. Like I wish I could kind of hop into a time machine and go forward several thousand years and just see what North America looks like and how, cause I like logically, I know that it's not going to stay and it will it will fall and something will rise up and take its place and i can't quite conceive of the falling part because it's obviously it's my home it's where i live um and i like i have no idea what comes next either so i think like just all modern political entities are going to i mean maybe not explode but they're going to be replaced by something else so i guess those are my answers <laughs> Yeah, those are really good. Those are really great answers. Uh, so thank you once again for joining oh, thank me Thank you morning. so much for having me. It was wonderful. I know. It's just such a pleasure to be able to sit down and, and speak uh, with you, but also just I love a seriology on the side. Oh, My second wonderful. jam. It's wonderful. I love it. And if anyone um, is interested in seriology, I'm going to plug a book, mm-hmm. um, which is from the British Museum. It's just called Cuneiform by Irving Finkel and Jonathan Taylor. And it's super small. It's like, I have a copy here. Let me see how many pages. Aha, 101 <laughs> pages. Ah, So okay. it's a nice short read. It's meant for people who know nothing about it. It will give you a really nice introduction into cuneiform and the world of Mesopotamia. So highly recommended. Oh, fantastic. And then uh, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash digital Hammurabi. And we have all kinds of interesting things there. We also have a website. If you have like specific questions, you can submit um, a question through the contact form. And that is digitalhammurabi.com. And I'm on Twitter. And at the moment, I'm not talking so much about serology because that takes time and research. I'm mainly talking about how uncomfortable being pregnant is. Uh, So if you feel like hearing a pregnant lady complain, my Twitter handle is at digi underscore Hammurabi. I like to think I'm kind of funny sometimes. But I'm not sure if that's just me being arrogant or if I am actually funny. I'm going to go with funny. I, most <laughs> academics don't think they're funny for some reason. I'm like, no. It's because if you put us in front of like a group of undergraduates, we all freeze. It's like, yeah. yeah. what do I do? What do I? 
What do I say to teenagers? I'm awful at talking to teenagers. It's like, it's not. Well, hopefully you'll get experience. Hopefully you'll get better because you're going to have teenagers. <laughs> so, I've got so. a couple, so. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thanks again, though, for, for joining oh, me. Oh, no, and, um, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.